Hello, my name is Rosemary Milsom and I'm the director of the Newcastle Writers' Festival. Getting Even was recorded in 2017. Jonathan Biggins, Charles Firth, George Megalogenis and Chris Yulman discuss the politics of resentment with host Paul Scott. First of all, on the far left is uh, Jonathan Biggins. Far left. Yes. Jonathan is a Novocastrian who attended Newcastle Boys High. He's an actor, writer and broadcaster and has appeared on film, stage and television and is well known for his contributions to the Sydney Theatre Company's annual Wharf Review that focus its razor wit on local, state and federal issues and our most memorable politicians and the moments they'd prefer to forget. His His current work, Talk, is on at the Sydney Opera House and casts a critical eye over media and its uncomfortable intersection with the law. Good afternoon and welcome, Jonathan. Thank you very much. Uh, And I have no books to sign. Uh, Sitting uh, next to Jonathan on the hard left is Charles Firth. (laughs) Charles is well known to us as a, a comedian who has brightened our lives through his involvement with the Chaser Productions. Charles major in economics and social science at Sydney University and uh, his Wikipedia entry points out that uh, he was involved in the removal of a a plate glass window at a Senate hearing in uh, 1997 when they were discussing the introduction of hex fees. Yeah, I I smashed it in and then went through it into the Senate (laughs) meeting and then, um, yeah, it was humiliating actually (laughs) because... I then, I then went, I'll go quietly, I'll go because they had me, it was very painful. Anyway. Charles contributes to the Chase Quarterly. His book, American Hoax, remains a giant, the genre of political satire. One of his most recent tweets reads, I am so hoping that relations between US and Russia break down so much that we get to see the blackmail material they've collected on Trump. Uh, sitting uh, next to Charles is uh, Chris Yulman. He's an ABC political editor based in Canberra. Uh, Chris is a, a friend of the festival. He's been here before. We welcome him back this year. He's written a trilogy of political fiction, Marmalade Files, Mandarin Code and Shadow Game uh, with Steve L- Lewis. It's been bra- uh, uh, made into a Foxtel series, uh, Secret City. He's currently working on a second series of, of that particular program. And uh, I asked him what book he was uh, working on at the moment, and he said that um, he, there's a threat of divorce hanging over his head if he so much goes into a room with a pen with Steve Lewis. George Megalogenis has three decades' experience in the media. His book, The Australian Moment, won the 2013 Prime Minister's Literary Award for Nonfiction and the 2012 Walkley Award for Nonfiction. It formed the basis for the ABC documentary series, Making Australia Great not making Australia great again. He's also the author of Fault Lines, The Longest Decade, Quarterly Essay 40, Trivial Pursuit, Leadership and the End of the Reform Era, and the Quarterly Essay 61, Balancing Act, Australia Between Recession and Renewal. His current article in The Monthly is titled Our Ethnic Face. It explores issues around the changing makeup of the Australian population. Could you warm, give a warm welcome to all our panelists, please? We had, a, we had a brief time in the green room this afternoon and, and I suppose one of the concerns I came up with straight away is when you're talking about the politics of resentment, how, how do you not make it all about uh, Trump, Brexit, Hanson? 
and I'm not sure we got to that particular, an answer to that particular question, but I, I'd like to open up by asking uh, each of our panellists what they think the politics of resentment encompasses. Could I start with you, please, Jonathan? Uh, right. Well, I guess it encompasses those things as much as anything, but I think it began a long time before that. Um, there always has been uh, resentment. And I think the current sort of wave of it is um, based on a couple of things. It's um, First, I think one of the great drivers of human motivation, far stronger than greed or the desire for anything, is the fear of losing something you've already got. Uh, and I think that fuels a lot of it. I think that the exponential increase in technology has allowed resentment to be expressed more quickly, more anonymously, uh, with less humanity, um, with less sense of responsibility. And I think um, the, the, the cesspool that it, the internet has become um, is a contributing factor to that. Um, Twitter allows things to be done so quickly, so expressly, and with very little repercussion. Uh, it's almost become the drone weapon of resentment uh, that people use quite successfully. And I think resentment has long been exploited by the political class to, to gain um, uh, power or to gain the upper hand. As soon as you hear the terms, the politics of envy, you think, oh, here we go. Um, class resentment, um, the education debate that w was uh, shaped when Gillard was education minister about the fact that, you know, we're not going to, we will no longer be envious of the private schools. We're all, you know, going to embrace each other. I think those sorts of things are being used more and more, uh, and it's little wonder that um, you get the situations that we're not allowed to talk about until the end uh, arising. And I think uh, resentment is going to fuel the further divide in society. I think the inequality gap is growing daily. Um, I think resentment fuels uh, economic disparity. I think automation is going to even increase this further until we get to the point where we're all sitting at home on our living wage, waiting for the drone from Amazon to arrive from their fulfillment center, formerly known as a warehouse. Uh, and then we'll scratch our heads and say, how did it come to this? <laughs> You're such an optimist, aren't you? <laughs> what do you see the uh, politics of resentment, uh, uh, Charles? Uh, I, I think its root cause uh, everywhere is economic insecurity. Um, I think even in, you know, prosperous, rich, first world countries. I think everyone here knows how, how much less economically secure than we were a generation ago. Um, the truth is, I haven't had a, I've never had a full-time job. Um, my wife um, has been through a few periods of having full-time jobs, but, um, you know, doesn't at the moment. Um, in fact, I know very few people very few people, except for people who work at the ABC. Um, uh, and, and even then, all my friends who work at the ABC work on the condition of being above the line, which essentially means they get paid about the same amount of money, um, but are completely insecure in... They can be sacked at a moment's notice. Um, and, and if you sort of... And draw, that out, draw that out to less prosperous places across the world, um, 
you know, they of course have it even worse. Like it's fine if you're sort of rich and middle class and you've got a bit of a buffer and you can sort of get from one job to the next. But if, you know, you're trying to make rent each week and you've got the fear that at any point your, your income could dry up, as it did in 2008, as it did for some people in 2001, as it did in 98, as it did, you know, every eight years there's a convulsion that sort of <laughs> um, drives some people to the wall, then, then of course um, you're going to feel resentment. And, and the funny thing, is, so then link that to um, the fact that the politics of resentment is the easiest form of politics. It's, it's the punching down. It's, it's, you know, instead of our political leaders taking responsibility for this economic insecurity and going, oh, wait a minute, maybe we should control capitalism a bit. Maybe we should sort of actually let, not let corporations be such bastards all the time. Um, instead they go, oh, it's nothing to do with the laissez-faire market forces, it's to do with the Muslims, it's to do with the, you know, in some places around the world, it's to do with the Jews, it's to do with, you know, it, and that's the politics, and it's the easiest thing to do, it's so easy, and that's, and so essentially the politics of resentment, um, you're right, has always been there, um, but it's, it's a lack of political leadership that has, has let it so foster now, combined, supercharged by the ravishes of late stage, this late stage neoliberal 40 year experiment with letting capitalism do whatever it wants to do, even at the expense of all humanity. Thank you very much, Charles. <laughs> Chris, Can you call you... me a pessimist? <laughs> Do you, do, you, uh, do you share any uh, of the similarities with uh, the views expressed by Charles about the, um, the faults of neoliberalism? He's got full-time employment, so don't <laughs> trust him. That's what I have, and I'm, I feel very lucky because a great many of the people that I know don't have it and are losing it in journalism. I think I agree with certainly with the idea that there's a great uncertainty at the moment. We are uncertain that the promise that we're all grown up with, that we will live better lives than our parents led, is evaporating before us. People worry about the future. They worry about what will happen to their children. And that is driving a huge fear in politics, and people tend then to rush from one side of the boat to the other when it comes to trying to search for for answers. They've also lost faith in their political class, but the loss of faith in the Western world goes back much further than that. And I think it's a, it's kind of a deep malaise. We long ago lost faith in the churches. We've lost faith in politics. We've lost faith in our economic leaders. We've lost faith in those who used to lead the unions because really now almost nobody is joining unions anymore. So almost all the foundation stones of the West have come asunder. And I'd like to put into this argument that it's not just something which appears to be the underlying assumption that it is, this is a problem of the right. I think it's a problem of the right and the left. It seems to me that the left almost constantly now is at war with what were the fundamental beliefs of what a Western democracy actually constituted. Uh, once upon a time it used to represent the working man and that was the way that it was described. Now it would seem to me that in, the, in those industries that they toil, digging coal, working at the Hazelwood power plant, they are despised uh, by many of the left at the moment and we have ghettoized into different little classes of people which now yell at each other across the divide and often the mediating factor is simply Twitter. So 
uh, I think that there's plenty of blame to go around and to focus simply on what the right is doing, as I, I think George will say, I think some of these, these appellations have become meaningless at the moment, but to focus simply, simply on why a white working class man might be resentful, well, I think you've actually find he's probably got a pretty good reason looking around the Western world. Um, what is, the, is, is driving the hatred of some on the left towards those foundation stones of the Western world? Thank you very much. Any suggestions about the, that, uh, George? Um, before I sort of add to Chris's comments, because the political observation that the labels of left and right are pretty much meaningless today, that is, um, it's been apparent for quite a while, certainly when the Cold War ended and the second of the metaphorical walls, the literal wall that separated East and West Berlin came down, it came down roughly in the same decade that the tariff wall began to be torn down in Australia. So a lot of the protections that uh, people took for granted in an economic sense from government were removed. But then once the Cold War ended, obviously we're about to have a hot war, if not a Cold War, <laughs> in the present tense. But when that thing ended, a lot of what held together the parties of the centre-right and the centre-left in terms of voters who were lifetime Liberal voters or lifetime Labor voters, that started to fracture because people wanted a different reason to engage with politics, certainly come for us coming out of that late 80s, early 90s recession. And John Howard used to describe the electorate quite, this is, it would always round up, that uh, there was 40% lifetime conservative, 40% lifetime Labor, and the contest in the political space was for the 20% of the swingers. And because we had a compulsory vote, voting system, a lot of the action sort of tended to pull you back towards the centre, because 80% of the electorate could be trusted to do the thing that they always did. He said, and he was making this observation years ago, well before the GFC, he said, coming out of the Cold War, certainly going into the 90s, and certainly in his time as Prime Minister, it went from 40, 40, 20 to 30, 30, 40. And the single biggest voting bloc in Australia was the unaligned. Who might vote Labor one year, might vote Coalition another year, might vote, this is for primary votes, might vote Green, might go to Hanson. And politics has become a lot more difficult once you have a structural break like that. Before you even go to the disruption of technology and the fact that we're getting everybody's news at the same time on our phones, you know, the guy we're not going to talk about until the end of the session, Donald Trump, is, is, in, your, is in your news feed at the same time as somebody's descri uh, de um, describing whether you need to have fast rail between uh, up and down the east coast of Australia. So when that structural break happened, I think two things went wrong in the political system. One in politics itself and the other in the media, because the media had a similar hit to their readership, to their audience. And when you see your market share go from guaranteed 40, and I have to just add 10 of the other 20 to win, to I start with 30, how the hell do I get to 50? Um, and you're worried that that 30 might become 20. You start to yell a bit louder to what remains of your base. You become a lot more shrill in your conversation with the general public. But what you're actually doing is screaming to the base, don't you leave me too. And I don't know, the, one of the reasons why politics has jarred for me in the last few years is that a lot of the conversations seems to, seem to be aimed at a person who doesn't represent the centre anymore. And the fact we've lost, now this is obviously happening worldwide, but I want to talk specifically about the Australian trend. The conversations that we're getting out of the Turnbull government are base, conservative-based conversations. Those people are not going to go anywhere else. 
the conversations in whatever part of Australia you, you uh, look at are not about 18C. They're not about, uh, what are the other things I've been talking about lately? Because I would follow the news on a daily basis. But not about the things that you hear coming out of Canberra. Um, and on the Labor side, the conversations aren't about the factional, in, in middle Australia, not about factional bypass, but we're in the Labor Party. It just seems to be about who's going to be there, the lucky guy to become the Prime Minister when the other government falls down. Now, in the media, because I want to add the media to this, because I think we're sort of feeding each other's worst instincts. Between us, I still count myself as a media person, even though I'm not in daily journalism anymore, and the political system, we're trying to do the same thing. We're trying to hang on to what remains of our audience. So there's a, and I briefly alluded to this in my session yesterday, there's a brand of political commentator that did not exist when I first started in political journalism in the 80s. The political commentator that goes to work every day to yell at colleagues and to either punch down one side of politics or one group of people and to suck up to a political party. The fact that, and most of them aren't in Canberra, by the way, they are in headquarters in a Sydney or a Melbourne and all they do all day is shout. And the mastheads look at the mentions that these people get online and they go, a lot of people are watching this guy, you know, he must be doing something right, but they're not actually doing anything right, they're actually trashing brands. Uh, please don't tweet this particular observation. Um, but you know in the States, have you noticed since Trump became president, I'm not talking about Trump, uh, a couple of people at the Fox Network and at the Wall Street Journal have been going at each other. There's a guy called um, is it Brett Stevens and Sean Hannity. There is an extraordinary and very public fight for the soul of the News, News Corp organisation uh, and the two of them are going at each other. Now this sort of behaviour was unheard of even 10 years ago in our field. In Australia, now, today, the equivalent is Paul Kelly, who is basically trying to stand up for evidence-based uh, analysis and journalism, is now in a now declared war with about half a dozen News Limited columnists within the same family. And it is basically, it's quite an interesting argument, if you think it through, it, it's quite alienating to the average viewer or reader, but Essentially, journalism is now having to confront the what is your day job? Is your day job speaking truth to power, but more to the point, explaining to your audience how the world might be working or might not be working, or is it to be the loudest commentator in the tent and you, know, you send your readers over to, to spam this particular person's um, Twitter feed or to go so-and-so, you know? You've probably all read enough of this journalism now to know it's a turn-off. So I think that um, you could always start this conversation with politics, but I think you have to think about role of media in this one. Well, I think uh, one of the things that was mentioned by Chris there was the, the breakdown in, in faith of uh, some of the big institutions that have played a very important role in uh, Australian uh, identity formations. And uh, Jonathan just... Taking, going on from what George said, your uh, current work uh, talk is very much looking at the kind of questions around faith in the, in the media. And uh, I mean, I've, I've read some interviews with you recently about this particular play, and there, there seems that there, there is a bit of a resentment that has underpinned some of this work. I mean, a critical eye 
but but there's a, there's an anger there that 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 is coming across that is coming across. Yes, yes, that that is the subject of the play. Tickets still available. Book early to avoid disappointment. <laughs> Um, and it's met with a fairly hostile reception, we opened on Friday night, uh, from the electronic media. And I should have anticipated that because it's a play that largely bashes the electronic media, so it's no surprise. But I think that's absolutely true, and I think the press, is, the media's role and the complicity of it, I think it, it stems back to, and, and what George said about trashing institutions, politicians have decided that it's a good strategy. The, the um, scorched earth policy, the Republicans did it in Britain, um, Abbott was the master of it here, that if we can't govern, no one will. And you start trashing institutions like the public service, you start attacking the independence of the judiciary, you start undermining the very tenets of, you know, the separation of powers, essentially, uh, and you start undermining, well, you know, Keating destroyed the trade unions, um, so it's not just one side or the other. Uh, and you place everything in, in the um, protection of the market, and then you destroy the notion of public debate and, and public civility and civic discourse, and then when you get in, you find you've got nothing to work with. Um, you've, you've burnt everything that you hoped to inherit. Uh, and I think the media has been complicit in that, and I think the, the, the rise of the commentator, as opposed to the journalist, commentators are cheap. They don't have to do any research, they just say whatever they want. Journalism is expensive, and the financial model that to have journalists, apart from public broadcasters, and thank God for the BBC and the ABC, um, and who knows, they're under threat. When the managing director of the ABC goes to Four Corners and says, we need some more proactive stories about successful businessmen, to Four Corners, uh, then you, you know, alarm bells start ringing slightly, but I think yeah, you're right, the, the, the media does have a, a large role to play in it, but it, the horse has bolted. Um, that, that, that's gone. Yeah. Uh, now anyone is a journalist. Uh, and when anyone is a journalist, no one is. Yeah, can I just pick up on that? Um, I've got a friend who was the head of uh, digital at the New York Times for a while, and he was saying... Um, well, first of all, he was saying there is no business model. There's no business model anywhere in the world for journalism now. That, that got destroyed over 10 years ago when, when Google took over what essentially was classified advertising and all those search ads that, you know, you, you find everything using that sort of thing. That, that was classified advertising and that was the business model to fund journalism. When that got destroyed, um, you know, there's been this sort of hangover. Yeah, public broadcasting has held up its part of the bargain. The Guardian holds up its part of the bargain, but by losing money year after year through its foundation, and, and it will well, go broke. Um, arguably, in... the Australian holds up its part of the bargain <laughs> by losing money hand over fist every year as well. Yeah, that's right. And when Rupert dies, how long is that going to last? But so, because journalism is a process. Journalism is not... Um, it, it, but, but what uh, George is talking about is um, essentially a form of marketing. What, what has replaced... The process of journalism, which is having sources, ringing up people, hitting the pavement, finding out a story, investigating all both sides of the story and then telling the story, is replaced with um, a form of sort of clickbait marketing where you frame a story. The story already exists somewhere and you go, isn't this sad? You know, read through and you'll find a sad story or 
you know, this story will make you happy, and that's, or this story, you know, I'm so angry at this person. It's all, it's, it's not journalism at all. It's not even close to journalism, but it's, that, that's the business model that has sort of been adopted in the middle to sort of try and make the media companies work. But interestingly, what my New York Times friend was saying is that actually, the, um, so he came in and he set up a division to do sort of native advertising. So essentially, the New York Times now has a sort of, uh, is its own advertising agency. And last year, um, uh, the, that was the thing that prevented the New York Times from going into the red. So, and, and it's just trashing the entire brand in order to sell, like, it's now direct to advertisers um, going, hey, we'll, our journalists will create, you know, this thing that will sit alongside, it will essentially journalism about how great Dove soap is or whatever. Um, and the and New York Times does it better than most in terms of, you know, it always says branded content or whatever. But you're sort of going, that's, that's not fixing the problem. That's not, you know, like the hope is that, oh, that, well, that will create the business model for journalism. I don't think we're out of the wood there. I think, I think there is this dire problem, which is that, you're right, it's gone back to the amateurs. Like, everyone's a journalist now, and that means nobody's a journalist. There's no, except for the public broadcasters, which are also under threat, there is no business model there at all. I think it would be a pretty arid landscape, actually, if it ends up just being public broadcasting and the business models of these papers are, are all, as you say, completely under threat or have com collapsed completely. And without money to pay for journalism, then you're, you're not going to get it. And you're dead right. Everyone is a journalist now. So everyone actually has a bit of responsibility in this. I'm prepared to take the blame that we wear, and we absolutely wear it in the media for the nature of public discourse at the moment. But as citizen journalists are everywhere. Everyone with a phone in their pocket now becomes a journalist. Everyone who can post online. And the viciousness of the conversation leaves in the shade anything or any of the crimes that we ever committed. Yeah. So exactly. now that we have the mob at work, the mob is working the way that mobs do. And the nature of the discourse is vile. I, I, I find it kind of amusing sometimes, having been on the receiving end of quite a bit of it. You think, you think you can say that? Like, that's like a polite conversation to have with someone. You might disagree with me, but do you really need to do it in four-letter words online? Is that really the way that you want to have this conversation? Just there, was, there would have been a step, if you think about what the technology's done the last few years, there would have been a time in your lives where you, you know, like Elvis watching the TV, he got to shoot it, but mostly in the <laughs> privacy of your own living room, you see somebody come up on your screen and you go, eh. What digital technology has done is taken each conversation, not just out of pubs, but taken them out of every living room in the world and beamed them straight back at the reporter. <laughs> put, them in, put them in, so if you open, if you open an article for comments, yeah. well, you never should. <laughs> and if you go online and you say, I've just written something for so-and-so, well, you need to, unfortunately, and in they all come. So in a funny way, well, all we're hearing now is something that was already out there, but was never brought into the... Was um, never published. Was never published, yeah. And that's what everyone forgets. It never actually made the primary conversation between... You are, you are going on the public record when you go on Twitter and Facebook and do all that and put comments. You're publishing it. And they're trying to pretend they're not publishers. Oh, we're just a platform. You know, Twitter, we, we have no control over what people say. Then don't bloody put it up there. You know, don't have the platform. I love how this panel's about the politics of resentment and now... We're it's resenting everything. <laughs> for resentful people. <laughs> <laughs> Can I... 
Sorry, can I, I... There's something... I don't want to change the conversation, but uh, we did take it back to politics. You think about what is in, in our immediate lifetimes, the last 10 or 15 years, take the technology and, all the, and the GFC and all the economic anxiety out of it. I think the single biggest destabilising event uh, of the last 15 years, the Iraq War, for trust in the political system, for this, for this era that we're talking about. And so bear in mind that through the 80s, which were quite a difficult economic time, we had um, long-term governments in Britain, in the US. So the Republicans went um, three presidential terms, which was very unusual in their system. You've just seen to go from Obama to Hillary Clinton was, was an election too far for the Democrats. The Republicans had the White House for 12 years. Thatcher and then John Major in power for a decade and a half. Hawke and Keating were in power for a decade and a half. And then that handover to the other side was another long incumbent period. So Howard, 11 years, Blair in, in the UK. Now just thinking about the systems that we're all familiar with. But at the tail end of that is the Iraq war, and that is, I think, the beginning of the new, this particular volatility we have in the political system, where basically voters turn up one year and go, oh, you're the government? Out. I'll bring another one in until somebody can settle the story down for me and tell me, you know, that they're on my side again. Because no one's, you don't get a sense that politicians are on side anymore. Now, just take a little journey back into the 70s, coming out of the Vietnam War and Watergate, and here, obviously, the, the the dismissal, trust in institutions, trust in parliamentary democracy was at an all-time low in the mid-70s, mid to late 70s in Australia. And we know from the most recent Australian election study, we're back in that place now. And so I don't mean to change the conversation, but if Iraq hadn't happened in a parallel universe and you still had the GFC and you still had the uh, technology shock and you still had America on the decline and you still had China rising and all the other stuff that's happening, I wonder if it would have been as feral as it is now in the political space. I, I, I wonder, Chris, if um, uh, taking, taking on some of those points, but also uh, what, what Jonathan was talking about, is there a sense that it's in a way more easy for people to know what they don't want and what they don't like rather than to be able to articulate what they do want and they do like? And that's something that... Uh, that politicians uh, in, in this kind of sphere are able to capitalise on? I think it's always easy to identify what makes you angry. What's difficult is to try and, and, and find a solution that you can govern with, and we're now in that sort of space, and we've been, since, since uh, 2010, we've been in this endless churn of Prime Ministers. I mean, cast your minds back. When, was the, when did we not start a year when we weren't thinking about whether or not the Prime Minister would make it to the end of it? Now, that is extraordinary circumstance in Australian politics. You have to go back to the foundations of federation to find a time when it was, you know, the same, and then they were working it out. Like, they were trying to work out how this system should work, and there, was, there wasn't the two-party two settled system. So we are in exceedingly unsettled times. I think the foundation stones of, of any kind of pathway back are quite difficult because you have to talk about the restoration of faith in a process in which people have lost faith. Uh, for that, you'll need someone who is of, of greater stature than the Prime Minister that we have at the moment, or so far as I've seen him, and I'm not, you know, I think Bill Shorten is the next most likely, obviously, or Bill Shorten. We need somebody who can, you know, the thing that people are searching for is a sense of authenticity in somebody. They might not always be right, 
but they sound like they believe in what they're talking about. And I've spoken this at the last session, but I'll keep this very brief. For me, one of the big fractures in Australian politics, which was an enormous turning point, at end of 2009, we have the change from Malcolm Turnbull by one vote to Tony Abbott. You go back and have a sliding doors moment and, and shift it the other way, you would have had agreement on Kevin Rudd's climate change policy. Then you get someone in the public space, which is Tony Abbott, who absolutely, his one talent in life is breaking things. That is, he is this, he is this person who is fabulous at, at breaking systems as they are. His business model now is in play in politics in Australia, and I don't see it, it leaving. But then the point at which Kevin Rudd cuts and runs from what he called the greatest moral challenge of all time. So the community was up for something hard. He'd put them on a war footing. He said that climate change is the greatest moral challenge of our time. Will you come with me? And they were with him. And then when it got hard, the general ran from the field. And there was a crack in Australian politics which hasn't been fixed Remind since Remind him where he went that day when the story broke. I'm just trying to remember. Like he, it. He, was, he, was, he decided that he would change the conversation and, and he, he wasn't in a hard hat in this mm. one, but it was some hospital visit. And it was almost impossible to tell what he was talking about. His words were so obscure, but when we finally worked him out, it was, oh, guess what, <laughs> yeah, we're yeah. not doing climate change yeah, anymore. Yeah, I, I pulled up. That to me, so you can abandon a lot of policies in public, in the public space. You cannot be seen to abandon a principle. And that's what Kevin Rudd did. So what we need from whatever the next emerging generation of politicians is, from whichever side of politics they're drawn, because there are good people on all sides and in all parties, is for them to work out what their baseline is, to articulate it in the public place and to stick to it, even when it gets really hard. My, uh, my sister was a politician for a little while. Terrible politician. Um, the, the, she, was, she was good at the public talk, the speaking part, but she... She was a once she? What? She was a once yeah, um, But she... Sorry, no, no disrespect. Anyway, she, but she, you know, um, but it's horrible. It's a horrible, horrible job. So, I, I, like, I'm sort of not surprised that it's not the world's greatest talent competition. Like, to actually put yourself through being a politician would be just the most awful thing in the world. But, but the other thing that surprised me was how constrained politicians feel. That we've set them up with all these, especially since Hawke and Keating, there's been this sort of ideology of fiscal constraint and things like that that means that Treasury runs everything in such a constrained way. Like, I, I sort of said to her once, oh, why, why doesn't anyone ever announce, you know, oh, we're going to build a fast train to here and a train to here, you know, just give a sense of what could happen over the next 20 years, you know, some sort of utopian vision, like, because that's sort of what... Chris was talking about, we're sort of lacking a sort of bold-thinking leader. And what she said is, oh, well, you just get crucified by Treasury. Like, the moment you even have a brain fart about anything that's sort of, you know, slightly visionary, then what Treasury does is it counts it as a risk towards the balance sheet. So they actually go, oh, well, that would cost $100 billion to do. Oh, well, that, the implications for that is that they'd have to raise taxes by 50. Oh, that'll mean lower growth for, you know, Google, you know, and Facebook, or whatever. And they do all the sums and then put it in their thing and make sure that you get downgraded by Standard & Poor's for it. Like, it is a conspiracy between sort of... It, like, it, it's a neoliberal sort of straitjacket that have been put on these politicians that means that you don't get that sort of wonderful you know, free thinking that you sort of want out of a leader. Like, Bob Hawke was such a lunatic, right? Like, 
uh, you know, he was so, oh, bicentenary this, have a beer there, you know, like, but part of that was because actually he, he wasn't living through a time when all those sort of heavy treasury things had sort of been put into place. Um, and, and I think, I, I sort of think like this whole, you know, let's strive for AAA thinking, that's part of what we have to undo if we want to actually get out of where we're at. Well, I mean, the whole rating notion, you have a AAA credit rating so you can borrow money. Shall we borrow some money? No, we can't because then we might lose our AAA credit rating. <laughs> What's the point of having it? George, can I, because it's a panel of resentment, can I disagree on something? Yeah, yeah, no, yeah, yeah I thought I that might, yeah, I was yeah, looking yeah. at you going. That's oh. all right. I wasn't, I think, with all due respect to the, to the Wendy anecdote, um, it's not the Wendy anecdote, yeah, whinging Wendy anecdote, which is, um, the idea the Treasury tells a, a government that this doesn't add up is a good thing, not a bad thing. Uh, I don't have a problem with that. What's actually happened and what's gone wrong, I think, in the last few years is the, um, and this is, yeah, it's incremental, but now it's sort of beyond boiling frog stage. Uh, governments don't take advice, and if governments wanted to do something visionary, they wouldn't know how to build the argument, do the analysis, uh, spend a lot of time sort of raising you know, in the public space, what the problem is we're trying to solve, and when we've got an answer, we're going to get back to you, then you release your legislation or your package, you put it out to consultation, people argue over the detail, and then you finally come to a landing point, as they say in the jargon. Uh, that, that, that doesn't exist anymore. So if um, Treasury were pushing back, they're probably pushing back because it was a brain fart, but no disrespect. Now, going back a step to Hawke, uh, that is the system he set up. Even though he operated outside that system for a long time, seemingly as the, as the sort of, you know, great communicator, they set up this idea that government should be where it belongs, and so they did Medicare at the same time that they deregulated. Hawke, and especially Keating will tell you now, that was like 30 years ago. Most politicians today, to the extent that they think about the past, they think, oh, we've got to do more of what Hawke and Keating did. But Keating today will tell you that you need to find something else to do for the government because you can't, you're out of the way as it is. Mm. You've pretty much stopped doing stuff and there's a whole lot of things the market will never get right and you need to step back in or have some idea of how to step back in. So again, just to close the circle, the day a, a, a politician can tell the Treasury, we need to step back in and you need to help cost what it would look like to work, that would be the first conversation to have. Yeah, but. No disrespect, George. It, it, it really depends who is the treasurer. <laughs> now... <laughs> well, no, 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 let me finish, let me finish. When you have a visionary who is set on reform of any type, then the thing can work. But, but that is what is lacking in the current landscape. <laughs> I, I, and, and Charles, I, I also think that um, the idea that um, there's a lacking um, of announcements in Australia, a broad vision, we haven't got a lack of announcements. We've got a lack of follow through on the announcements. And I think of things like uh, Snowy Hydro 2.0, 
waiting for that yeah, one. No, but let, let's just be clear. Like, Snowy Hydro 2.0 was not even close to being what's necessary to sort of fix the infrastructure in Australia. Like, you, Snowy 2.0 actually proves what a capitalist Malcolm Turnbull is. Like, it's such a small scheme. It's not even a sort of government scheme. It was like a $2 billion scheme that was going to fix an immediate problem that would still be a problem in 2023 when it opened because it only fixed... The sort of, it was such a small project. I, I know somebody at Osgrid who was just laughing at it, going, it, it's so not... You know, like, it's just literally a, a little... What a merchant banker thinks of as a big project. It, it wasn't governmental in its sort of size. I had to admit, just a second ago, I have no idea what you're talking about. Because I know the story. I'm not in the daily media game anymore. I've got no idea what you're talking about. You missed it. I missed it. I don't know what it is. day that it was the brain fade. It will come back. And I think, well, another example might be very fast trains. I think you'll find most of the people in Newcastle will be happy to get to Sydney in less than two and three quarter hours. We don't want you. And... I think even more people will be happy to get out of Sydney and get to Newcastle in less yeah. than two and three quarter hours. I've always I've wanted just a moderately fast train between Canberra and Sydney for years now. Is there? Still, well, but the there trouble is, is four if, hours. Even if you do do something, like you know, building the tram, well, putting the tram back in, um, <laughs> there, there, there was an oh, idea right. of a forward government thinking. Let's take the trams out. That'll be a good idea. Um, but putting it back in, okay, right, you do it, and then everyone starts whinging and bitching about it, and, and, and no matter what a politician does, it just attracts so much... The storms seem to be ever-increasing, and the teacups seem to be getting smaller. Yeah, well, the other thing, too, is, is and spare a thought for them, too, because a lot of people say now, you know, Malcolm Turnbull should be courageous. He should take on these people in his party and then fill in after that what you want him to do, to be your perfect Malcolm Turnbull, and you've got the answer that people usually give. Well, don't forget, that same Malcolm Turnbull took on his party, trying to drag it over the line on climate change, to sign on to Kevin Rudd's carbon pollution reduction scheme, and lost his job in the process. Uh, and, and never forget that the Greens opposed... Exactly. That particular uh, but they plan. did it for principle, Chris. Yeah, but yeah, that's right. Because why? Because Bob Brown said it would lock in failure. Well, what have we got now? You know, the one point in history that we had where we could have had bipartisan support for this thing, we could have put this, this wretched argument behind us and started to move on with talking about something else. Uh, he tried. Now, if you were Malcolm Turnbull now and people were saying, I think you should do this next brave thing, Malcolm Turnbull, would you <coughs> not think, have second thoughts? I think the other problem maybe, is that... Maybe, uh, oh, sorry. Maybe, yeah, I think sorry. the only way back is to do brave things, by the way. But, you know, would you not be there thinking, well, what's, what's worth my job? I remember when John Howard came back. So I remember when yeah. he finally came back. He had about three yeah. goes after he lost the leadership in 89. He, he put his hand up in 90, they wouldn't have him. He put his hand up again towards the end of 92 when the Houston experiment was starting it a bit wobbly. They told him not to run. 93, after that election, he had a party room ballot and Houston beat him by the same margin that Peacock had beaten him in 89. So he was basically about to give up. And, uh, but when he came back, eventually came back in 95, and they're reading up the research on him, even though he'd been unpopular, the people liked the idea that he was A, still standing, and B, you get a fair idea of stuff that he believes in. And so he wasn't prepared, he was, whilst he did run a small ball strategy against Keating in the 96 election, 
there were things that he knew that the people were across how he felt about things, which made him reliable, but it actually meant that he ended up doing more than he otherwise could have if he was just sweating the polls like he did the first time around as opposition leader. So he learnt something between 89 and 95, and he had a very difficult first term, but I think, you know, he was sort of on song by about 2002, 2003, and that's probably the time he should have retired. Turnbull has had almost an equivalent period in the wilderness, a bird's eye view of not only his own demise, but then the demise of Kevin Rudd, and then the implosion of Tony Abbott. But he's come back as somebody with all this reservoir of goodwill, because he had a consistent position on climate change, and doesn't just say to his party, right, I'm back on my terms, which is the way Howard came back, and it was certainly the way Hawke took the leadership in 83, and it was certainly the way Keating took the leadership at the end of 91 on the Labor side. He, he came back on his terms and the people were willing him on and a couple of weeks later he's decided, well, oh, OK, we can't do anything. So, but the time to have been courageous was the time when he had the capital to spend and that's when he, you know, had the best approval rating since Rudd, Rudd 2007-2008. Uh, now, of course, if he did have a go, and what would he have a go about? I guess this is the better question. What would be the issue to restore faith? to sort of dial down the resentment and bring back some hope, there isn't a single issue for him. Well, part of the problem is that when I was in, you know, in the debating team, the debate would end and a decision would be made and you'd move on. But now we live in an, a world of endless debate. No issue is ever settled because everyone's opinion is equally listened to. So you can get Malcolm Roberts, you know, the whole climate change debate. Uh, and they also focus the terms of the debate on such a narrow thing. No one ever says, well, what, are, what would be the upside of even if we did decide to move away from coal, one of the fundamental basis of Western democracy, according to Chris? Um, See, I didn't we... say that. See, this is what happens in debate. I didn't say that. <laughs> but what if, Hands what if we up, looked I say at that? the this upside, is what happens in public the economic debate opportunity? We'll what if we even shifted it? Um, what if we were able to just say, well, that's it, it's done, it's gone, move on? But we don't, because people can just endlessly say, well, I don't agree. And I don't have any facts to back that up, but I don't agree, so therefore the debate's still valid. And it's still ongoing, and we won't make any decision. I think people, it's, it's a sense of policy paralysis, simply because they don't want someone to come out of the woodwork and say, I don't agree with that. And what can Turnbull do, really, when he's got nutcases like Christensen and Bernardi and all those people... I mean, the good thing about Hawke, he had a very talented ministry and he allowed the ministers to get on and do the job. Howard successfully delegated all the, and a lot of the dirty work as well, to his ministers who were able to do it. But we don't have that depth, I don't think. We haven't had it for a while on either side where you have a cabinet who are capable of articulating policy, form formulating a strategy, working out what needs to be done and then doing it. Yeah, just yeah, can I just say, yeah, but by yeah. the way, but on that, and I know that Jonathan was joking, I hope, to a certain extent about... I was joking. Thing. You mentioned Hazelwood. Yes. Um, <laughs> it is that I think that uh, this is part of the problem in public debate. You can't say, and, and the point that you can't make is, sure, we're going to move away from coal. It's our second largest export. What do you replace that with? But if you're going to That's make those what you've got to think of. Yeah, it means you've got to formulate. Means. Yeah, but so, so, and iron ore is our first largest export, and liquid natural gas is the one after that. So... When people say that there's going to be, particularly for an economy like Australia's, some easy transition from it what we're doing now. It won't be easy. Exactly. It. So we have to have hard conversations and people have to be allowed to make a point 
without someone saying, oh, because you've said that we need to keep some of these coal-fired power plants open for a little while, that you are opposed to any action on climate change. No, we have to have a sensible disconnection from the old system and into a wise connection to a new system, and it's a, a difficult thing to do. A question you raised there, gas. Why are we now paying so much for our gas? Because they can get more for it overseas. Now, there's no... Why don't we have a, a policy discussion about, you know, safeguarding some gas for our own use? It's our gas, and rather than let Exxon and whatever... But if you listen to the Greens, we can't use gas as a transition fuel from coal. And how do you imagine this will work if you don't do that? I agree, but I mean, but it's still, if we let the market rule, getting back to Charles's earlier point, uh, then we're going to get these anomalies and these, these bizarre situations where we're impoverishing ourselves simply to serve an overseas or a globalised market. And I think globalisation has also led a lot to the politics of resentment uh, on both sides. You know, the, the fact that the idea that we can sort of treat the world as one place, I think is spurious. And that's what leads to tribalism and, um, you know, the, the calls of Hanson. And, th and they're not without foundation. Every person is defined by as much by what they're not as what they are. And I think, you know, trying to suppress through a prohibition any discussion of differences between countries, nationalities, clans, races, religions is not the right way to do it. Excuse me for a sec. Yeah, yeah. Um, look, I, I am conscious of the time. Um, we, we are due to finish at 2.30, one of the jobs I'm determined to get right today. Um, so I would ask people who uh, wish to uh, uh, ask any questions of the panel. Um, the microphone is located up, up the back. I'm just wondering if people could move, people who wish to ask a question, if they could move to the back of the room and if you could perhaps make your question rather sharp rather than have it uh, preceded um, uh, by a long explainer, uh, that would be appreciated. And we uh, won't be taking anything as a comment. <laughs> Can uh, George, yeah. yeah. Uh, just before we take questions, um, I'm, by the way, I'm just going to, last year, I don't know if any of you would, uh, were aware of this, the Sydney Writers Festival, we were, doing a panel with, I was doing a panel with uh, Sarah Ferguson about the killing season, and we mentioned John Faulkner. And then up Bob John Faulkner to ask the first question. <laughs> so if anyone's here, it's burning here today. But, here. No, Malcolm Turnbull, but Malcolm's not here today. <laughs> I'm just thinking somebody with a vested interest in some of these debates might just bob up at some point and um, say, but by the way. Um, now I'm going to loop back to a point that Chris made a lot earlier about uh, loss of faith in institutions. When people keep looking back to the, the so-called glory days of the 80s and 90s, and I know I'm very invested in that time because I've written a lot of stuff about it, um, the world that Bob Hawke, with his very talented front bench, uh, who, by the way, didn't think that Hawke was any good, but were quite happy because he made a really good chairman of the board for them. I mean, they all had super egos. Um, in that world, a Labor government could you know, enlist the trade union movement would still have close to half the working population with a union ticket. So, you know, Labor wants to do uh, real wage cuts for about six or seven years to make Australian industry competitive again in exchange for Medicare. Now, you can't get this stuff done today via the power of one. And unfortunately, what's been happening in the last few years, and this is 
partly why I think we're churning through the leader, there aren't enough people in the system to be able to back you up or even to come up with the idea and then you um, channel it as the leader. Everyone looks to the leader to be able to come up with an instant answer, no support on the ground. You'll see, you hear it from time to time, so Turnbull and, and Scott Morrison have been whinging to the business community, why don't you stand up and argue for the stuff that you want? Of course, then they do talk about same-sex marriage and then a third party says, oi, you're, you're not allowed to lead on that. Um, Let's talk about political Yeah, so I actually think, not trying to oversimplify this thing, but I think essentially between institutions, between electorate, between media and the referral up to a single genius, the world never worked well in the past on that model. In fact, every society that ever trialled dictatorship never got to go back. Um, maybe the Germans are a bit, of a, a, a bit of an exception to that rule. They're probably the only exception to that rule. Um, we're investing a lot of, a lot of um, faith in a, in a single person, which is not the way the system was designed. And, Absolutely. And I, think, and I suspect that is one of the reasons why you, you're on, almost now on this permanent loop of um, inflated expectations, bound to be disappointed, and then extraordinary pushback on this individual for not having fulfilled these rather unrealistic dreams that you put on him. There's but of course, no, no but, but, but No, no, but in Malcolm's head, though, he was that person. And Kevin was that person. Because there's a focus in the press gallery on politics rather than policy. But, and yeah, that but, people are only interested in the speculation. I still remember watching Margaret and David when you broke into the program. Sorry. Barely containing your excitement to announce <laughs> that Mr Rudd was being rolled. Can I, can I, can I just... <laughs> Take it from, from... I knew it would be my fault in the end. <laughs> Charles, I, I know you had something. Something. Can we get a comment from you, please, and then we'll open it up to the floor. Well, no, I was just going to say, what George is actually talking about, though, is the effective coalition that gets you across the line politically. Like, and that's what's sort of broken down in the last 30 years, is there was a coalition between the working class and the educated middle class that got Keating and Hawke across the line election after election, and they would supplement it with the environmental movement in, I think, 1990, and then they'd shaft the environmental movement in 1993. Um, and, you know, sort of a shifting coalition, but there was sort of an effective thing there. And that's what um, both sides of politics are struggling to create. Like, identity, what Chris initially said, you know, is absolutely true. There is a sort of, you know, the union movement is on its knees, uh, having done, uh, done all this stuff that sort of destroyed their own institution, you know, for a better social wage and stuff like that. And you have instead identity politics, which does not coalesce nearly as well as um, and into effective sort of um, political coalitions as the sort of unions versus bosses, you know, uh, dialectic that, that happened up until sort of, the, you know, 30 years ago. Would you agree with that? And, and that's why, that's why it, there's such a sort of person at the top, the leader becomes all important, because actually Hawke's cabinet were, they were representative, they had a broad coalition of representatives there. You had people from the metal workers and the and these far left, you know, the building, I mean, the initial, they're all corrupt building, building labourers, you know, in the cabinet. Um, 
in 83 and 84, as I understand it, I mean, I was about three then, um, all the way through to sort of far-right unions and, and the more Labor Party hacks and things like that, that was a broad coalition um, thing. You, you could not have a cabinet like that today. It doesn't exist. Oh, could I, yeah. thank, thank you. Sorry, yeah. Look, could I yeah, invite a question there? Someone's been very patient standing there at the microphone. Thank you for a great discussion. Um, I wanted to ask the panellists their thoughts on another aspect of the politics of resentment, one that I think at least half this room is very aware of, mm -hmm. and that is the, the resentment against the women's movement and the successes in that it has achieved and the move towards equality. What we've seen recently um, over the years building up is a huge amount of politics of resentment against women's success and women's movement towards equality. I was wondering if you could comment on that. Can I go first on that? Sure, George. Um, so about 15 years ago, there were a couple of tipping points occurred in, in sort of Australian society. About 15 years ago, you began to see, um, you know, in the workplace, the, the, the physical manifestation of the rise of, of a better educated uh, female worker. And you have to go back 20, 30 years, um, you know, the pill in the 60s, free tertiary education in the 70s, massive increase in participation in work by women in the 70s through the 80s, into the 90s, and by the time you reach about 2001, the economy is creating more jobs for women working full-time or part-time than it does for men working full-time. And all these tipping points are you know, on the front page of The Australian for years afterwards, and there were very many interesting parts of this story. In the professional, when you measured up all the professionals in Australia, there were more women than men that were working as professionals. When you looked at uh, what women did after the first child was born, the age at which the uh, mum returned to work the age of the youngest child at which mum returned to work went from 6 to 13, which is a position that lasted all the way from the 50s, 60s, 70s into the 80s, and then it started going down in steps. And the most recent data is babies 12 months old, majority of mums are back at work. So all these things, that, you know, the tipping points were recognised about 15 years ago. But in the intervening 15 years, and I think this is what you're alluding to, the wage gap... It's actually widened, it hasn't narrowed. You, other things being equal, you'd think the market would reward the smarter worker, the better educated worker. Smarter, better educated, look, you know, we're, these, are, these are labels. We do know that in the 21st century service-based economy, the worker, the most viable worker, is female, not male. And of course, we're talking about politics resentment. Most guys who still run corporations, most guys who still run political parties, um, are, are still pushing back on behalf of their cohort. And it, I think this is an underestimated part of the story. So we look at Trump and we see a white without college degree is the big swing voter, both men and women, by the way, in the US. And so we see half a dozen states that Obama carried switch to Trump, making president even though he loses the popular vote by almost by around three million votes. In five of those six states, uh, the, the white without college degree by school leaver in our, in our, in our language uh, is about 50% of the entire electorate in five of those six states, way above the national figure. So uh, this thing, and in fact, <laughs> when you're looking for stability points beyond where we are now, the stability point, well, there are a couple of them I'd see, is wage equality and 
the first step to diversity, which is a workplace looking like the country at large, is unfortunately be good to be able to get ethnic diversity at the same time, but the first step to diversity is get the gender story right. And weirdly, I'll give you an example, I'm gonna put my Melbourne hat on. The strangest thing happened uh, in, in the summer. Uh, a women's competition began in the AFL, and the AFL has been wondering for years, you know, they put the team out in um, great, uh, the GWS Giants, they're trying to figure out what to do in that sort of growth corridor of, of Sydney's West, you know, where soccer's coming in, trying to figure out, you know, um, whether Chinese will follow football to the same extent that Greeks and Italians did and Vietnamese did, where the Indians are going to go. And suddenly they had a, a, a light bulb went off a few years ago and they said, before we even worry about our, our supporter base and our playing lists looking like the country at large, what about the other half of the population? And that thing uh, it was the best watched live sport over the summer. It outrated the cricket at some point. Uh, there were lockouts at all the games. More people went to uh, the women's final than went to the Brisbane versus Gold Coast game between the blokes. So long story short, if that became the grand project in the next 10 years and everything else didn't get done, gender equality, we'd be a much better place, I think, 10 years from now. A lot of guys in this room might not agree with me, but... Thank you, George. I could do the economic analysis, but you don't want to hear the analysis. We'll go but just quickly, first. when I'm talking about the politics of resentment, I'm talking about the rise of misogyny as well, which yeah. is part of all this. Well, I think yeah. it goes back to what I said earlier, um, that people are more worried about the fear of losing something that they have. Uh, and I think it's just defensiveness on the, on the part of men who have held it. And also, I think, you know, again, when you can be resentful remotely, um, you, you will be. When you control, and no one knows who you are, rather than actually having to go up to someone and say what you would say on the internet. But the other worrying thing is that, um, you know, misogyny was rewarded in the United States, and it's very difficult to explain. I've got two 17-year-old daughters. Very hard to explain to them how that could possibly happen. But it did. Um, and may I congratulate the panel on getting almost to the end without mentioning Trump at all. <laughs> well, well so we're, we're not quite there yet. I'll, I'll take another question. Thank you. Thank you for coming. Along those lines, I'm sure it's no coincidence that we have a full house and five white men up the top. <laughs> now. We will uh, be apologising for that in the I only, I only became on. white in the 70s when yeah. the Vietnamese came. I wasn't white growing up. <laughs> and, and that was... So you out haven't to asked me, me how I identify. We are the so. only men... So the simple th question... These are the only male panellists in the entire day for this venue. I, so I can see that, yes. OK, look, the simple question is um, what's driving the reversal of uh, the Native Title Act effort of George and his colleagues? Is it resentment or is it so-called economics? Not qualified to answer, sorry, George. Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, something's obviously gone missing in the last 20 years. So we've had, we've had uh, an interesting engagement, attempted engagement from non-Indigenous politicians. Uh, you know, the High Court sort of starts this thing with Mabo. Um, a lot of people then decide, will you, won't you apologise? That being the debate, we do the, we do the symbolic. But the public policy failure uh, 
in this space, in any other sphere of public policy, you'd have the bureaucrats and the politicians lined up in the city square and they'd be pelted, if not executed on the spot. So what is that about? I mean, this, this is, I think this is quite a, an important question. What is this about? So there's probably not enough self-awareness within the non-Indigenous governing class that their interventions, however you define them, don't work. So this is... Uh, you can always tell a politician uh, is about to retire by the fact that in their last year or so, they want to do things to Aborigines. Do to uh, them, yeah. To Not them. for them. Not for them. Well, for, ostensibly for them. But they'll set up a, you know, Tony Abbott uh, announced when he left, oh, I hope that my lasting legacy is that I spent a lot of time in the top end. And John Howard, I think, made a similar thing, having done the intervention in the, on his way out. And, you know, like, and we have this, and it goes back, I mean, it goes back to the beginning of, you know, 1788. That's how Australian politicians deal with a a Aboriginal relations. They do things to them. Yeah, and, and, and ATSIC was the one... What was it called, ATSIC? It was yeah. ATSIC, yeah. It was the one, you know, attempt at self-government. Um, but do we think... Uh, and that's when the figures started going in the right direction. Yeah, just getting back to the question, do we think there's been a pushback in... the in real Australia, or we think the pushback is confected politically? Um, Can I, it, I... I think the actual... Uh, it's far more mercenary than that. I think that there is a... Uh, there's, um, there's certain electorates in Queensland and Western Australia that are marginal and are swung on issues of guns and flags, basically. And part of that, building a coalition to reach 50%, is also about... Um, fueling racism against Aboriginal people. And I think it's as simple as that. I, I don't think... There's, it's not a huge... Um, there's not anything more sophisticated than just going, actually, if we do something horrible to Aboriginal people, then actually we'll, we'll get all these people who might have voted Labor instead or something like that. Yeah. And I think it's as simple as that. Yeah, but there isn't, there isn't another area of public policy where... Uh, a government would continue to dictate terms of engagement, make mistakes, and then come back and say, well, it was your fault, which Just is essentially what the... Uh, even the language there, I mean, talking about politicians uh, leaving office and having a legacy of having done something to or for, perhaps rather than with, might be, might, might, might be one of the problems there. Another question? Um, yeah, thanks. Um, been really interesting discussion, and you picked up on the women's AFL, which I agree is one of the most amazing things that's happened, and all that. But look, I really George in particular, but the rest of you, I'll have a go at too. Um, <laughs> but this theme about the '80s and that it was all so easy, and you've been talking about the union movement as though it was this monolithic group that just came on board. I think. The 80s was a great time and there was a consensus there, but that consensus came about from the strife of interests and debates and really liberating debates and really dynamic debates, sometimes with the aid of pharmacological assistance in the 60s and 70s, and I was there to remember it, and it went on and on and on, and that built a great acceptance of we've got to think across the community, and sure, and Hawke and some of his very 
good talents pulled that together, but also with people in the community. It wasn't politicians pulling strings in back rooms. It was a whole community no, I agree, thing. I agree, I agree. And I think that's where we've lost that we have to, across the community, engage in a debate, challenge all the assumptions, say, no, you can't just sit in the trench and throw mud at the other side, and we've got to develop the ability again to have the really wild sort of arguments that went all night and all day you know, when I was very young. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I am wary of nostalgia. Um, you know, when people say the world's a terrible place, I think, well, it was a lot worse in 1942, um, and we've got a long way to go before we get back there. And the other good thing about, um, you know, Hawke and Keating, let's not forget, they set about the dissolution of the union movement when they stopped compulsory membership. They opened up the economy to the forces of neoliberalism. They are the ones who, who gave us, in many ways, what's now not shaping up as perhaps such a great idea. So while there were so many good things done and there were so many great reforms, perhaps in the longer scope of history, we may not regard them as fondly and as kindly. Uh, so I think you're right, and I, and I think the Labor Party in some ways set out what they achieved, well, they achieved what they set out to do when they began, was to liberate the working class into the middle class. Uh, and with automation and with technology and the way that the world has moved, is there a working class as such of any scale or size that could do such a thing again? And I think that's part of the problem of uh, this notion of what does the Labor Party stand for. Yeah. They have to progress to become um, some sort of democratic, sort of mildly leftist social government. And I don't think left and right really exist. There's not really a left anymore. But that's what people were saying in 1985, in 1965, probably in 1945. And, yeah, they were. You know, 1785. 19, uh, certainly in 1932 with um, um, the Labor government falling apart then. You know, that's been the theme all the well, way so, along. And we, so, you're focusing on the leaders rather than on your history of the great movements from the ground up. Yeah, yeah. and I absolutely take your point. Yes. So it almost become another session. The 10, 20-year backstory to the 80s. Um, and as I say, I mentioned the 70s for a reason early on because we are in an equivalent time and place today where um, a new model should be... Uh, been thrashed out before our very eyes, but uh, why I'd be more pessimistic now than I was than, than looking back? Uh, the 80s obviously is not a golden era. It was, it was a very difficult decade, um, but there was recognition in the 70s what problems Australia needed to solve, and there was a general agreement across the main political parties and amongst most of the institutions that were engaged in this debate. So the Business Council, the trade union movement, they argued it for 20 years, but it's at, at, at the sort of, you know, when the, literally the gun to the Australian, Australian nation's head in the early 80s after what was then a second deep recession in seven years and thinking that our, you know, our story was about to end as a, as a, as a prosperous nation, people got off their backsides and did stuff, but they did agree on the, what, basically what the problem was to be solved and they could argue in, in and around that through that decade. We are no closer today, 15 years into this, you know, into the 21st century, be able to identify uh, what the problem is we're trying to solve. But, and that's, and that's the big, that is a big difficulty and that's why politics, we will come back to leaders in a funny way because you sort of 
because nobody's building an argument anywhere, you sort of go back to the individual and you think, can you solve it for me? But, but I reckon one of the reasons why civil society is in such a dire um, situation is, is economic insecurity. I, I, I think the truth is I look around and everyone's so busy and so immiserated by the work that they, they do. Actually, you know, like my parents were part of the peace movement and grew out of that 70s sort of slightly hippie-ish sort of thing. And they would go to meetings all the time, we'd go to rallies, we'd, and it was this sort of relaxed atmosphere. And if they had a problem at work, they'd have a stop work meeting for four hours and discuss it and things like that. That just does not happen. Like, it, like the sort of institutions of civil society require time and that's the one thing that we've been sort of stripped of yeah. in, in our civic engagement. And getting off our bums. But it's I think not it's enough to say, je suis Charlie, yeah. and you know, tick, yeah, I like that. That's my social activism done for the day. <laughs> you've got to get up. You've got to move. And you've got to meet and talk and be active. It's not enough to sit at a keyboard and say, I'm going to join Get Up. We are... Uh, now I'm going to be completely contrary. We are in a much better place economically today than we were in 1982-3. So at the beginning of the 80s, we had something that was very difficult to achieve theoretically in an economic textbook. We had inflation and unemployment both rising at the same time, both crossing 10%. It happened in Britain briefly, but most of the economic historians looking back on that period view Australia as the basket case of the 70s and early 80s. So. Maybe people are looking back on this decade thinking because there was a lot more community. But we were happy, George. Were they happy? It's because you were As young. As I said, I alluded Jonathan. to the fact earlier, you had the youth. democracy was at an all-time low at the end of the 70s. Well, look, on that point of false consciousness and its role in, in happiness, I'd like everyone here to uh, give a warm Newcastle welcome to our panellists, Jonathan Biggins, Charles Firth, Chris Yulman and George Megalogenis. And thank you very much for attending this afternoon. My name's Paul Scott. Good afternoon. I hope you enjoyed listening to this conversation from the 2017 Newcastle Writers' Festival. We hope you can join us this year from Friday, April the 6th to the 8th. We have 130 of Australia's best writers coming to town ready to share their ideas and insights. For more information, please visit newcastlewritersfestival.org.au.